But on the other hand, we have a really nice and interesting effect that few people know about. So if you're taking, for example, a line like the lavender line, in my case, who has been line bred since 2005, after a certain um, amount of generations, and in my case, it happened after the 10th generation, so approximately after 10 years, those animals, they really begin to change their behavior, their genetic behavior. So, and, and we are talking about polygenics here because it is assumed that more than one gene is doing its job in order to create a lavender gecko that is holding its color. So what you have, and this is the secret, if you're buying from a breeder who is really doing his homework and has lime bread for a long time, um, you can outcross them and you still get lavender babies to some extent, or maybe even at a high extent. And you can work with them as if they would behave dominant. And this is called polygenetic dominance. And this is also an effect that is confusing many people. Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, we have a repeat guest on the podcast. That is Rebecca Hassler of Dragoon Gecko. We had Rebecca on the podcast back in July of 2023, and it sparked a ton of great conversation. And many of you reached out and asking if I could have her back on the podcast. So I was really happy to do that. Even if you aren't someone who breeds morphs, or maybe you're someone who actually thinks morphs are evil and we shouldn't have them in the hobby at all, this is an episode you'll want to listen to because you can kind of we tap into the mastery behind how Rebecca runs her operation. And if you're somebody who's breeding just for wild type animals, you'll pick up a ton from this. If you're someone who thinks that morphs are bad and we shouldn't have them in the hobby at all, I think this episode might shift your perspective a little bit. I mean, she offers a lot of really good information here about how to do this properly and ethically. So in the episode, we discuss purity. Can you use the term pure when you're discussing morphs? We discuss the difference between polygenic genetic and simple traits. You know, we see a lot of simple recessive or dominant traits in ball pythons, for example, and a lot more polygenetic traits in leopard geckos, but there's a mix of both in both species. We discussed the potential of having a leopard gecko genome that would allow us to test what morphs each leopard gecko or each individual is carrying. We start starting to see that in the ball python world as well and how genetic testing can actually help the practice of morph related breeding become more ethical. And finally, we discussed the process of domestication and are we actually starting to domesticate these animals and what are some traits and some key factors that play into domestication? There's so much in this episode. I know you'll enjoy it and we'll definitely have to do another one with Rebecca in the future. But until then, enjoy this one. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> Hi, Dylan. It's a delight to be back here. Thank you so, so very much. And a happy new year. Yes, happy new year to you as well. And I'm very excited to have you back. I mean, we, we, we talked, I know we recorded the last episode sometime late June last year, so it probably came out in July or something. And uh, for those who didn't listen to that episode, I highly recommend going to listen to that one first or, or listen to this one, then go, then go back to that one as well, because there's so much good quality information. But one of the reasons why we wanted to have you back on is because you are a leopard gecko breeder, but you really take breeding to the next level as far as just how thorough and methodical. I mean, anybody who's interacted with you will see how methodical you are, or even looking at your Instagram posts. When you, you make a post, it's not just a picture of a gecko. There's you know a couple paragraphs of really good information that go along with just your ethos and your philosophy. So you are taking 
just the standard leopard gecko reptile breeder to the next level. And uh, that's why we, I, I really wanted to have you back on. There's tons of people that listened to the first episode and they were just really blown away by it. I mean, you look in the comments and pe- on, on YouTube and people are just fascinated by your approach and, and how in detailed and in-depth you do things. So for those that are listening that are wanting to get into a breeding project in any capacity, it doesn't have to be leopard gecko specific, I know this will be an incredibly valuable conversation because you can pick up on things just like the first conversation that you can implement into any breeding program. It doesn't even matter if it's a reptile or not. There's so much that you do that just carries over into making sure things are ethically done, the animals are healthy, and we're producing animals that we can be proud of in in the hobby and in in herpetoculture that aren't, and they aren't just, you know, animals with disease or sickness and that we're not feeding a market for no other reason than just wanting to breed and i think that's a, a huge problem in our hobby and you seem to have a, a good foundation of avoiding that so having said that thank you so much <laughs> really honors me I, I just wanted to say that i mean it happens that i fell in love with leopard geckos because they were one of the first reptiles that i encountered and uh, yeah, the, the genetic diversity, the possibilities blew me away. But basically what we discussed in the previous episode and what we also discussed here can be adapted in so many things to all other species. And what I'm hoping to achieve here uh, with you, especially in, in this podcast, and uh, I think we, we, we managed last time, was to just inspire people to think a little bit, you know, beyond um, what's in in the classical books, and and just you know, go on a journey of evolving and and discovering what what we really can do to understand our animals better. To if you breed, breed them better. Be responsible while still reaching our goals. So that has been a, a very delightful journey for me so far. Yes, yeah. It there there is something about breeding that is very exciting, and it, it pulls people. If you do it too quickly, you just end up pairing the first two animals that you come across. Maybe you find an animal at a pet store, and then you know you had it for a couple of months, and then you realize, oh, I kind of want to breed this species because I really enjoy it. And then you go to your next expo, and then just go find a, a counterpart for it to pair. And yes, that might have some you know fulfilling nature to it, but you're really not potentially not doing animals any favor, but not really giving yourself an actual deep project that you could work on and have, you know, something that's a little bit more exciting. Um, so, so maybe we could jump into just give the people who have maybe have not come across you just sort of a, a rundown of, of, of like the amount of animals you work with and kind of some of the, the projects that you're working on. Okay. So basically, um, my name is Rebecca Hasna. I'm the, you know, brain or yeah, the, mastermind behind Dragoon Gecko. You can find my work on Facebook. You can uh, find latest update, of course, on my Instagram. And I've basically been breeding leopard geckos since 2005. And uh, the interesting part of this journey is that I evolved basically from just breeding leopard geckos and uh, to trying to catch up with the news more very quickly to what I do today. Um, The main focus of my breeding is to really go deep into creating um, new bloodlines and projects by working with a very diverse gene pool, by working with a very complex breeding system. We talked about it in the last podcast. Basically, my whole breeding system is built up like a horse breeding stable or dog breeding stable. So we really try to make this um on the best level and, and most responsible approach possible. 
And uh, of course, um, something that is very close to my heart that is taking up more and more space lately, especially in the last season, if we do a little recap maybe later on, um, is the breeding of almost extinct and yeah, rare and old valuable bloodlines. So I became from someone chasing the next new thing basically to a really um, lover of of old treasures from the past and basically yeah one of dragoon gecko's main focuses today is and holding those treasures from the past for the future hopefully mm. and yeah i mean for those who are maybe not familiar with some some of the leopard geckos maybe you could tell some of those morphs that originally popped up but but before you do that just it, it is funny how we can get stuck into that wanting the next new thing next new thing and then some of these interesting you know, phenotypical displays of, of color or pattern can just kind of get disappeared or get so muddy to the point that that they're gone or or they're mixed in with things that are no, now creating animals that are no longer healthy. And then something that used to be a good, strong, interesting looking animal now you can't have. Yeah, exactly. So that, that was some of the main factors that have driven all this from the start. The realization that we had a really... Um, wave of extinction when the one or two new morphs came in one was the raptor in around um, 2005 2006 so many of the old bloodlines back then um, that were very valuable very stable very healthy just disappeared from the market i was too young to do anything against that or just you know to react to it in some way because i just started getting into those market but i witnessed it and everybody and its mother was no chasing raptors, breeding raptors, and they are beautiful in their own right. And funny fact, one or two specific types of raptors are now becoming extinct. So really, the next big thing back then is now almost impossible to find. As I had to find out for myself, it wasn't so easy, you know, throwing through the internet, finding people who, who had the exact phenotype I was, I was looking for. An exact what does type raptor, raptor look like? Uh, the raptors basically, um, just like in ball pythons, we'll get into that later, a stacking of different genes. Um, it is an, basically an eye mutation combined with an albino mutation combined with some polygenetic factors. Um, the stripe and the reverse stripe together, they form like a kind of patternless. That was a, a really big thing back then in 2005, because remember back then we just had mostly normal banded leopard geckos, the very first junglish geckos entered the market in the US and in, in Europe. We were almost not near to it. The first really jungles that I can recall um, being really bred by smaller people were around 2008, 2009. So yeah, all of this played a huge part in the raptor being such a mind-blowing experience for people because suddenly you had a gecko that looked completely different with this bright carrot tail um this this bright yellow base with the orange highlights the red eyes that we have never seen before coming from the eclipse gene which is an eye mutation that darkens the eye completely makes them black and if you put albino on it of course you're ending with red eyes um in some cases they had just half the eye split so that the, the one half was normal and like in a normal gecko and the other one was um, raptor or, you know, half red, half black looking. So um, 
you had some really interesting variety and, and possibilities were endless there, basically. So we had that wave. Uh, we also had in the current years another wave of extinction when the Black Knights entered the market because everybody was so fascinated about an all-black leopard gecko that many breeders, many hobbyists especially, forgot you know, to follow their older projects and made room and space for this next big thing. And all they bred was, you know... Um, dark geckos and and making you know new experiences with them which is perfect and all right but those are especially the times where the old lines are in danger because if we hit a critical point if if the animals are getting fewer and fewer the population shrinks to a certain degree then it is really hard keeping them alive. And this is also an experience that I'm making. Fun fact, every day people are seeing those old projects that I'm working on, especially on Instagram. And I'm always, you know, honored and happy if people write me. But most of the time um, it's like, oh yeah, when when will they be for sale? And then <laughs> I have to take a deep breath and remind myself again that, I can't really say it because not because I, you know, um, want to hold them back for myself. It's just that if you're working with old extinct bloodlines, your main goal and focus and the true problem is how do you establish a large, diverse gene pool, that a population that is big enough, strong enough, um, genetically variable enough. I hope this is the right word. I'm not a native speaker. Guys, please um, bear with me here. So how can we create this variability and the stability and the health inside this population of those few animals? Um, and how can we achieve that by, you know, trying to outcross but also carefully trying not to stray away too much from the original gene, gene pool because then we end up with animals and crosses I, i'm sure most leopard gecko and people experience that when you outcross too much then then you have animals that look nothing like the original form so one of the true um, difficult steps and why this is really something for, for master breeder level. It is much harder and holding something that is rare from the past than creating something new. Because when I create something new, I can basically outcross, I can do everything, I, I can refine. And with the older projects, I have a standard that I have to fulfill while on the same time taking utmost care that those animals are healthy and really, you know, having the best life quality they they have because this is my responsibility as a responsible breeders. I owe it to these animals. I owe it to every leopard gecko that is born under my care. They didn't choose to be born. I chose to create them. Mm -hmm. And I deeply feel this responsibility and this is something that I take so, so serious. So whenever people ask me, oh, when do you have them for sale? I want to buy them. I'm very humbled. But on the same time, I don't know. It can be two years, five years. I've been working on some like the high glows 
I've been working on this project for over 10 years and people are like, oh my gosh, and you don't have anything to show. I have something to show. I decide not to do it because I don't want to stress on myself. And it's also work in progress um, with very, especially highly polygenic old projects. You really have to make sure that health goes first. That means you can't always take the animals that would look best for breeding. So you really have to, to carefully plan. And here our breeding system comes into place without those really tight-knit breeding system that we discussed in the previous podcast. I wouldn't be able to, to achieve this in any way. And probably even if I, it would take me three times longer. So especially with the high glows and with other uh, morphs, it is a struggle. It is two steps forward, one step backward. And with some projects like the Neon Bells, it works really, really well because they are so dominant and true to, to themselves and with other morphs and lines. It's a different story because the look that the exact look that you're looking for is not so easy to achieve. And then if you have one of those few animals, you can't just sell them off. You mm -hmm. need them in your stock and grow the population before you can give them out. Because what would happen if I would be too hasty and maybe too interested in money? So money was never the drive for me in this. And this is an excellent example why. If I would look at the money side and decide, oh, well, yeah, I got, you know, five nice uh, animals. Why not sell three of them? I would end, I would small and my already small gene pool to a degree that I have to be afraid of, that if something ever happens to one or two of my core animals, the whole population would collapse. And I can't count on other people to really continue my work the way that I would continue it. So this would be um, such a burden to others and it's not their job doing my job. So <laughs> I have to make my job first. And if I have, you know, a stable population, you know, population. And if I have some stability and I have some numbers, then I'm able to carefully give out certain animals to selected breeders where I really know they are in good hands and they, you know, align with the my goals to really enhold them for the future. So this is also, also not so much a money thing, but more how to find the right places for them because not everybody has the stamina and, and the the you know drive to devote his life the next five or more years to one project many people want to go into them now because they're cool and they think they can sell them for money mm -hmm. and this has never helped never so this is not what we do this is not what i do um they are not for sale all our extinct bloodlines projects are currently not for sale except for one or two that are already stable but uh, we really take care that that we give them into responsible hands and we really look that um yeah we can partner and team up with people that also um enjoy maybe our, our input that 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 we coach and that we can make sure they have all the information necessary so it's it's not that we i demand nothing that I'm not willing to give in return. So I think that's a good approach and a serious approach. Um, and it has worked well so far. We have just exported the very first Albase ghost, uh, which are also pretty rare. As you know, Albase, Limebred Snows almost were instinct. We were keeping a big population. We were able 
to release some of them last year and it has been a great success and and we found some fantastic homes for them and the first ones are now in Canada I'm really excited and uh, I'm sure those breeders will do a fantastic job you know continuing um, my work and really working closely with me together and helping me to establish a second colony. So if anything happens that maybe I can, you know, uh, get a hold of those geckos and or vice versa. Are the breeders in Canada, is that publicized or as far as who they are, or are they kind of just under the under the radar? Yes, like, no, okay. no, no, they're, they're Dragonheart Exotics. <laughs> it's okay. Who is it? <laughs> Dragonheart Exotics. Okay, okay, yeah. cool. So people can go check them out as well. Uh, I mean, and just the way you answered that question just shows people how methodical you are and, and, and how patient you are. And I think, like, how, how do you... Because the allure of, of breeding quite often is for the money and for the excitement of creating something new, but your mindset isn't there at all. It, it, you're focused on something totally different, which I think is a lot more rewarding in the end. How, how do you... How, like how do we sell that to people to, to if they want to get into a breeding project how do you say okay you're going to spend 15 years or 10, whatever it is establishing this and it's not going to be about the money and I, I don't necessarily have an issue with people making money off of breeding but I think that is one of the problems that has happened over the past 10 years is we just get too overwhelmed and people think that yeah. they can do this so is there a way to sell that well <laughs> yes and no as as always in life I like to approach things by seeing the whole spectrum and not seeing the world in either black or either white because neither is the truth. So what we have to understand is, and I'm a firm believer in that, and that's also why I choose for certain projects, I choose my partners wisely. Um, I'm not a big fan of crushing the market because I made the experience, especially as a former student of veterinary medicine, who has spent the time in the clinic, who has seen the patients coming and going, that the only animals who received good treatment were the ones who were valuable, 80%. That doesn't mean that you or I or you as a listener are, you know, not one of these rare exceptions who would do everything for a $5 gecko. I sincerely believe that. And that may maybe, you know, um, not a problem to you spending 500 or 200 um, on an operation for a gecko that is worth $10. For me, it's not a problem. And I'm sure for you, Dylan, it, 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 that's the same thing. And for many of our listeners here, but we have to be aware that um, even the listeners here of this podcast, we are a very small part of the people worldwide keeping reptiles or getting into reptiles. I would also distinguish between the keepers who are experienced, who do this for passion and the ones who get into it, maybe out of curiosity, maybe because the best friend, you know, moved to another country and <laughs> they just got it as a gift or whatever. Mm. Um, so th th the hard reality and truth is, and this goes for all animals. Um, and this is the experience that you make in veteran medicine every day. An animal is often only worth what you're willing to pay. And people, many people are not tolerating high bills and higher care costs if the animal is, you know, in, in their eyes replaceable. And there is another conveni more convenient option um, to solve this problem, so to speak. And that was heartbreaking for me. And this was something that I, I couldn't tolerate that 
goes so much against everything I, I ever felt and ever stood for since early childhood that I decided if I breed, I have to do something different. So the answer is yes or no. How do you sell it? First of all, um, I, I don't sell it at all because I don't waste my time with people who want to do it their way. I have a good instinct. And if you have some experience or selling geckos for 15 years, you know who they are. Mm-hmm. If they are going to do their thing, they're going to do their thing, whether I tell them otherwise or not. I'm aware that I'm just a voice in the void. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not the gecko god. I can't force people um, to do what I think is right. And maybe not everything that I think is totally right. Everybody has his own way of doing things. Sometimes there's more than one answer. But surely when it comes to animal um, care and, and animal treatment, I'm sure we are all on the same line that every animal deserves to be treated the best way possible and also deserves to see a doctor when it clearly needs to see one. Yeah. Um, so... This can only be ensured, not by good talking, but by the price tag. So my whole focus has always been um, to breed on the higher end side, not because I want to make money. I would make more money if I would breed more geckos for less. But instead, I'm selling very few, very selected animals. And uh, they pay the high bills that I have over here. We have we talked about it in the last podcast, so I won't repeat it. For you guys who are interested in hearing the costs, um, it is a lot. And there is a lot to be considered when you're working, especially with a bigger um, gene pool and and bigger project. So it all accumulates and you'd be surprised how much you really spend um, on terrariums. I spent 15K, I think, on terrariums only. It's (laughs) mind-blowing. I mean, 15 grand, figure that out. And then we're not even at the end of the spectrum. You know, we, we have the health test. We have so many things and so i can't really force people making the right decision i can only lead by example and show them a better way and i can only make sure that it is more attractive to them financial wise to go the right way than to go the wrong way so this is why i'm not a fan of crushing the market because i feel it's not doing a service to the animals if leopard geckos are perceived as cheap and Let's say every leopard gecko on the whole market would be 50 bucks. I couldn't do my work, for sure, Mm -hmm. because the costs are so much higher. I could never cover it. And no matter how hard I would work, I could never make that that money to to ensure that there is every time that that they need, you know, to see a doctor, there's money saved behind to to ensure that they are going not tomorrow, but today, right Mm -hmm. now. And also to specialists. I mean, I've driven, also driven with an old, um, one of my favorite males to to the university in Switzerland in Bern for a complete uh, specialty uh, checkup to find out that, you know, um, what what his health problem was. So um, it's a three-hour drive. It's over, you know, a border. You have to do paperwork. You have to pay for all of this. So this was really more complicated than, you know, just bringing them to the next vet next door. But those are really specialists. And um, I like working with people who who really know the species and, you know, have an in-depth understanding about 
the animal that I'm bringing to them. And it's no use if they're good with snakes and then they don't care about leopard geckos and vice versa. If you're a ball python breeder, you certainly want to go to a vet that, you know, has treated ball pythons, especially when it's something like egg binding or something. Time mm. is of the essence. You really need someone you can trust. And I have the great advantage that the other Person, my best friend uh, in study who started Dragoon Gecko with me, Martina Konechny, she is a certified vet, so she finished her study. I didn't, different story, but uh, she's still there. She's doing all the health management for Dragoon Gecko and she is very, very good connected. So she recommended me immediately. You go to Switzerland to this and this person. She's working there. She's worked with me. She's excellent. She's closer to you than I am right now. So we we make time a priority so that he can get the help and and everything that that he needs and that was a good decision because the uh fun story fun end of a of a story that would have ended quite different um i called martina my friend after i got um the diagnosis of my first veterinary here around the corner who's also good with reptiles but that she really doesn't know you know what's wrong with him she was she was seeing some grades of you know um decalcification in due to age in in the hip in the right side and he had some swelling and he had some problems and her advice was just to put him down mm. and i was like he has lived with me for over 10 years and I spent 10 years to to chase him down because he was the very first leopard gecko that, that we talked about. He was exactly yes, the same yes. male that we talked about on the first podcast, the mm -hmm. first electric I ever laid eyes on, Saturn. And he was so, he and I, we have a special bond and, and I could see that he was, you know, he wasn't that that bad if you would clearly have suffered i wouldn't have hesitated to to take take the advice i'm not a person who you know likes to make animals you know making the wrong decision just for my own comfort mm -hmm. so the animals always go first but this was clearly a case where i wasn't so sure because he was eating and i thought he had a fair chance so i called martina and i was crying i was like i can't let saturn down just like that i need a second opinion at least before we decide to do that and then she was like okay you go to her she has worked especially also with arthritis and roima in in reptiles so if he has either of those she's really experienced and i went there and they put him on a medication and he's still with me today and thriving mm, that's so amazing. That, that is so cool for me. That was so amazing. And also to see the joy in those doctors' eyes that they were like, you're coming from Germany just, just for that? You know, yeah, we, yeah. we rarely see people going through those efforts with a leopard gecko. And I was like, yeah, he's, I don't know, he's my buddy. He's, he's, and I would do this for every of my animals. So I think so this how, goes how old without is he? saying. Is he, he's over 20 now then? He was born 2005. Okay, so almost 20. Yeah, he's pretty old for a leopard gecko. I hope he'll get even older. He's currently in winter sleep. And yeah, maybe we'll see. Maybe we, if if he's active enough and interested, he he will get the chance to, to breed. Um, but... We, we made x-rays back then. We made x-rays right now, again, to confirm that 
he hasn't progressed in something and he's he's still fine so we could stop you know the um the damage going on there but um i really want to make sure that he's really at you know more than able to to breed before i decide and if he doesn't it's fine then he just has his forever home with me so this is also something that i find very very important that you know of course yeah he's rare but that doesn't mean that that i have to breed him if he can and if he wants to then i'm happy but it, it's for him to decide and um i will see without females how he's doing how he's moving after winter sleep and then i'll make the conscious choice to mm-hmm. to set females inside or not and if i have the slightest you know um fear or impression that he's not moving properly um he will just be you know a beloved uh pet and and staying here and have his forever home so this is also important if we take money above everything else it blinds us but on the other hand if we give away everything for free it also blinds us for the for the other consequences so i think we we need to really figure out what is best for for the animal and i think what's good for the animal is that we we try to stick to a price limit that allows different people to acquire them of course not every leopard gecko should be five grand or something like that but it should be a normal thing that some leopard geckos are more expensive than others and it should be a given that people who are in it for the high-end stuff should be interested in keeping the prices excuse me a little bit stable in order to protect the animals and that means maybe sometimes cutting down incubating less and you know thinking about the 10 animals that you can sell instead of the 30 that you can't meaning don't incubate 30 if you can't sell 30 if you don't have the capacity to sell 50 eggs or 100 don't do it you don't need to do it you can breed on a smaller scale and you can make your in, in your investment back with few animals and then those animals basically you know finance the next veterinary builds and everything that that you need to really give them the care they they desire and they need and it's more convenient for you it makes keeping and breeding so much more fun and relaxed you don't have to worry about you know can i afford this and i think this is also a part that we need to talk about um Having the finances in mind is not always uh, due to the making money syndrome. In our part, it's really the concern of the animals and how we finance the high cost that that really this exceptional care requires of us and how we ensure we can continue the work that we do for hopefully the next years and a long time. Because to be honest... I can only breed those rare and and extinct lines and and can try to put them back into the market because I have some geckos that run the show for me and that you know help me um financially to yeah get this all running mm-hmm. so um I think this is not a bad approach I just think that money shouldn't be the only thing on your mind for sure and you always should be able to make um sacrifices and step a little bit back in the short term 
to get out the best for you and your animals in the long term. So you're always working with the animals and never against them. So that's how I see it. If you're planning accordingly and I'm never planning, you know, from month to month, I'm not also not planning from season to season. I'm planning in five years or 10 years and I know exactly where I want to go. And this is why I don't care um, for example, best example in the past six years, we haven't sold any geckos that I bred to the public. Not at all. I didn't make any money out of geckos the past six years. So we sold for the first time last season. We will sell again a limited amount of geckos this year to our conditions, not on a public website, but on a private newsletter so people can contact us. We're making sure we're getting the right places for them. And I think this is a, a better approach and it protects the animals and it brings us so much further than if I would just, you know, get in panic and compete and, and have the feeling that I need to compete with everybody else and I need to adjust my prices just because someone else is, you know, offering them 10 euros cheaper. There will always be someone who sells the animals cheaper. You can only lose that battle. And I think this is one of the main problems in the reptile scene that we are talking about for years and every influencer or high-end breeder or well-known breeder will agree with me here. Um, this is one of our biggest concerns um, that our customers and, and the people owning our geckos and breeding with them get in panic too quick, too fast, and then undercutting each other mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, breed too much uh, in the first season and one thing leads to another. So um, I would feel more confident if people would really open their minds to what we we are talking about here and read between the lines and and see that there's clearly a better way for them that also allows them to have and calculate with a stable income for five mm -hmm. seasons if they do their homework instead of you know rushing into it and then dropping the prices and being in panic and once the prices are down if especially as a beginner you have no chance raising them up again. And then then what? Then you sell out after two or three years because you're so frustrated. And where do the animals end up? So I think this is something um, that we need to talk about, that we need to avoid whenever possible and, and just show people, especially when they're one year in the game or just starting out, that there's no need to panic, that there are ways to ensure they are making their returns while, and this is the good thing, while working for the animals and their mm -hmm. well-being. Hey there, I'd like to take a quick break from the episode to thank this week's sponsors. We have Exotics Keeper Magazine, which is a herpetoculture-based magazine out of the UK. If you live in the UK, you can have the physical magazine delivered to your house on a monthly basis for only a couple of pounds a month. If you happen to live somewhere else in the world, you can sign up for the digital copy of the magazine, which is completely free at this time, which is an incredible opportunity to really sink your teeth into some amazing articles. It is a very well-rounded magazine, including articles on advancing reptile care or just exotic animal care in general, conservation efforts, zoo news, and probably my favorite articles are the ones that are written by people who keep particular species, so you have features on particular species, including their care guide, how to breed them, you know, the nuances of caring for each species. So if you are looking for more information, head to exoticskeeper.com. Again, the digital copy is free, so there's absolutely no reason not to sign up for it. 
I would also like to take the opportunity to thank Custom Reptile Habitats for sponsoring the show. There is an affiliate link in both the YouTube description and the show notes. If you use that link and purchase something, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you, which of course helps support your own animal with a high quality enclosure and helps support the podcast and keep the lights on in this room. Let's jump back to the episode. Yes. Yeah, I think that is incredibly well said. I think it, it, like you said, the, the monetary piece has to play a role and it can keep the, the business running and it can help you make sure the animals are happy and healthy. Uh, but, but there also has to be this deep care for the individual animals themselves. And if that's kind of the overarching theme of how you approach it, then you, you, can, you know, can be pretty confident that you're probably doing the right thing. And I think even the concept of you know, not really marketing what you are going to sell to the general public. You almost want the people who are looking for the specific thing that you are selling to come find you because there's somebody out there that's looking, just like you were at one point, looking for pure line or you know a clean line or something, and you're going to scour the internet and find that specific person who's working with it instead of marketing to a mass audience and then ending up in the wrong hands effectively. So this, this kind of brings me to one, one of my first questions for you is, what does pure mean to you and, and you know you this is a term that you use and and, and uh, we've talked about it on the podcast last time but when you say this is a pure you know blank morph uh, what does that mean and how do you how do you define it mm. um i think we have to start by going a little bit back in time in history so sure um i can't remember the year exactly i'm sorry <laughs> probably due to my age, but I remember that approximately around 10 years ago, um, we had a huge um, problem in the scene that um, in the leopard gecko scene, especially, we can also see that, uh, by the way, the same phenomenon uh, occurring in other uh, reptile communities, whenever color morphs and lines are involved, we had the huge problem that, uh, for example, let's say, Kelly Hamak from from his she developed and bred her own line of tangerines, the electrics, for example, and they were the really first high-end tangerines. They were not a little bit pale orange with a little bit of yellow. They were almost blood, yeah, blood orange to to reddish. So we never had that before. So of course everybody wanted it, and many people tried to get their hands on it, and some did. And then we had the problem that we had those breeders who actually worked with the electrics and got males and females. So, aka the ones, you know, being the breeders of the pure line to their understanding at that time. So, we had the term that and the understanding at that time that a line is pure when you have bought from the original breeder or animals from the original line and you have males and females and you're putting them together and you're not mixing other stuff into it. So, that was at that time referred to as pure. And then we had those people um, who made crosses, which is uh, fine. And also something, by the way, side note, I'm also doing and I'm forced to do. And it has their their relevance and it is necessary to keep the health and vigor of bloodlines alive. But you have to label them as that. If I cross an electric with, let's say, a normal tangerine, then it's an electric cross. But many people figured at that time it would be so much more convenient selling electric crosses as electric because... Who is to tell the difference? Yeah, who can say for sure if if there? I can always say, oh, I'm sorry, it didn't turn out so well. So that's what happened. 
we had a relatively small amount of um, original. I, you see, I I don't want to use the word pure here, but the original electric from the original breeder, we had a very limited amount entering the market. I was one of the happy people who, who got both sexes and you know, was allowed to work with them in, in Europe, especially right away. But I saw from my own experiences that the crosses, the outcrosses that I did right from the start to enlarge my gene pool, they look completely different from the the original animals, the pure line. And I saw so many people clearly selling crosses as, as originals and that confused people. They lost a little bit of the trust in the line. They were like, oh, okay, uh, if that's how electrics look, they look just a hint better than normal tangerines and that their price tag is, I don't know, three to five times higher than what I currently pay for a tangerine than maybe... It's not as good as the name implies. No, it was never, the issue was never the genetic power of the animal. It was a false um, advertising, so to speak. And I think the main drive behind it was money. And this is always something that we uh, need to uh, encounter from time to time. It always also seems to go in waves in the reptile industry. I don't know if, if you made the same experiences or observation. I always have the feeling that we have some some years where it's very low, the percentage of people who are not labeling their stuff as correctly as they could be labeled. And then we have some really bad years where many people think, oh, yeah, let's make a quick buck and then exit the game. Mm -hmm. So we had all this confusion about what, what makes an electric. So, um, and this was not only with the electric. So, of course, we, we breeders, we talk to each other and we have certainly done that back then. And all of us were pretty pissed and concerned about this development and that it could harm the good, solid and proven potential of the lines we were working with. So we all agreed, okay, let's go in public and let's, you know, um, just educate people that they know what they are getting into, that if it looks a little bit orange, for example, then it's probably not a pure electric. So if it looks, if it has these and these markers and it, if it comes from that and that line and both male and female, then it you have a high percentage than it is a pure electric. So the term pure over 10 years ago referred to being both breeding partners being from the original bloodline. So like a, time, basically a, a sibling inbreed almost. Um. It depends on the breeder you're buying. If okay. if you're breeding from a big breeder or from someone like me who has five or six breeding groups per per project, I have five or six different electric groups. Some have been outcrossed and narrowed down again, and and some are further, but they're definitely all further apart from each other because they all originated from different founder animals from different side projects from Kelly. So you can have a breeder, for example, like like me, and I'm able to give you two electrics that are not brother and sister, certainly not, not even cousins, but great, great, grand, whatever. Sure. Okay. That siblings, makes sense. cousins. But you can also have a breeder and and this is where it's getting complicated, uh, who has three animals and then yeah, you're ending up with half siblings or siblings um and you have no other choice. So um I think the problem started when the people are trying, were trying, the, 
the audience were trying to grasp the concept and it made sense to them and they were trying to do the right thing, which was wonderful. So everybody now demanded pure animals. But with the years, the interpretation of pure shifted to non-head for anything. And I don't know how it happened and why it happened, but the assumption was that to stick with this, um, you know, a dive into history, the new interpretation was now that an electric, a pure electric would be an electric that is not head for anything. And nothing could so be further from So it's basically only the carrying the genetics to display the electric phenotype, but yeah. nothing else. And those two different, you know, interpretations they have totally different consequences and a totally different concept behind them you need to understand that an animal that is from his from kelly can be a head for tramper why because kelly developed this line and we don't know what's in this line she she could have had an animal that she bought from someone that someone bought from someone and it was a hidden head tramper and neither she nor the breeder before nor the breeder before even through test crossings um you know was able to confirm 100% that it is head for tramper so it wasn't labeled as head for tramper and so a header is a guy a head trade header is a, a heterozygous yeah zygous i'm sorry <laughs> Now it happens. I'm not a native speaker. I'm, I'm yeah. a deeply Polish. No, no, no. And no. I get this normally quite well, but today seems to be the day for misspelling. Um, <laughs> so basically, a gecko that is carrying a hidden recessive trait um, can carry on this hidden trait for generations to come. And we don't even know anything about it unless we're doing a gene test. And that's the problem right now. Technology has just evolved recently that we are just starting to develop gene tests for ball pythons. And the ball python scene is the perfect example for the great confusion that's going on. As much joy and as much potential and fun it is to have so many genes and combinations to choose from, at some point, if you're not labeling your stuff correctly and if you're not having absolute trust in the ability of the breeder and the breeder before and the breeder before uh, and so on. You can't say 100% for sure what's in this snake because there are always genes that can be hidden. And with the ball pythons, we have the big advantage that many traits are dominant or co-dominant or incomplete dominant would be the correct term. But I'm telling them both. I'm naming them both here so you guys know what we're talking about. So Basically, a dominant or an incomplete dominant trait is where the copy of the gene is visible. In the incomplete or co-dominant, one copy is visible. And if you get another copy, then you get the super form. But you can always tell that that this is, you know, like, like I don't know, a pastel. A pastel is a pastel. It doesn't look like a wild type. Mm -hmm. But if you... If, if those genes no stack and accumulate, sometimes we have what we also talked probably about in the last podcast, the phantom effect, so that some genes are visually blocking the other genes. And we also have this with leopard geckos. And with leopard geckos, we have the big chance in breeding. Personally, for me, I love it. But it's also a big challenge that many, many traits are polygenic or can be heavily influenced by polygenic line 
polygenic breeding. Um, which leads us to a situation that we don't know what's in this gecko. So coming back to the story, Kelly might sell me two or three animals and she might be certain and has, has you know, used them. Let's say she used this exact animals for three years and nothing ever came out of it than perfect tangerines. So of course she's right selling me those animals as no heads. If I ask her, hey, do you know about any hidden heads? But that's all she can say. I don't know about any hidden heads. She can't give a guarantee because she is not the Oracle of Delphi. She doesn't have magic powers. She's just a human being, such as me, just as, just as you. Because she doesn't know what's really gone into the lines from her founder animals. I acquired my lavender line, 2005, the first animals. They look so different from what they are now. And I'm quite certain that I know what's in these lines, but I will never give a guarantee unless I can do gene tests because gene tests don't lie. They, you know, they alone can reveal what is really behind and and genetic makeup. It can reveal things on paper that I can't see and that I can never track down. And I think this is the complexity and and uh, the difficulty when we are dealing with a topic, what's a pure line? And I personally, my personal interpretation is when I talk about pure, I don't really like this word so much. Um, I rather refer to the term 100% of original descent rather than no known heads. A no known head for me is a no known head. But we see on morph markets so many animals sold as no known heads. And I bet that 80% of them do carry the one or the other trait because you would have to test for three forms of albino, three or four different eye genes, patternless, blizzard. Let's say you have 10 or 15 or 20 genes that you have to test breed for. You can't test breed that gecko, especially if it's a female. She would be long, long, you know, too old for breeding before you have paired her with every male, even if you have one male every season that switches, mm -hmm. you might have 10x of her in a bad year or 20 in a good year. And then let's say 50 or 60 or 80% hatches. What, what, what does this number say? It doesn't guarantee anything. Vice versa, if I pair up with a male, in theory, I could put 10 females onto that male. And I can mm. create with this male in one season more offspring than with a female. So we have a really uh, big problem proving um, head traits in females. We have better chances in males, so we can never be sure. And this is where I think in the future gene tests come into play. This is really essential. And as long as we don't have those gene tests, we should relax a little and think about what is really important. Is it really important if I buy an animal that it is free of everything that I know of? First of all, you don't know that, even if it's sold to you by that. There are one or two breeders that I would fully trust on this because I know they've done their homework, but I wouldn't trust every breeder with this claim. And not because I I don't think they're capable. I just know the natural limitations of being a normal, moderate-sized breeder, just like I am. I can't test breed every of my animals in the way that I wish and like to. Of course, we do test breedings occasionally, especially if we add new blood in our stock. But that's what I always tell my clients. I can't give you a 100% written guarantee unless... 
I have a gene test. And as soon as a gene test is available, you can count on that. I will test all my animals out of curiosity, all my yeah, breeders. Yeah. But that's not the point here. The point is what really matters. Um, I think what matters is if you're buying a leopard gecko uh, for breeding purposes, that you shouldn't be so focused on no known heads because what do you want to produce with it? If you want to produce trampers anyway, then it doesn't matter if it's a net for tramper, right? I mean, you you spare yourself one year. You are even quicker in reaching your goal. Sometimes hidden heads can have a huge potential and, and, and it can be a really cool thing. It can also be a win situation. You just have to be careful um, not to do, you know, what, what we call the... The deadly sins, you shouldn't cross different albino strains. You should stay away from animals who could carry more than one albino strain, more than one eye mutation strain, because this really leads to confusion. Because then you're pairing those animals and you can't really say anymore, is this an eclipse or is this a noir desire or what? What? what is this? So um, I think that that should be something that should concern especially new newcomers a lot and this is where they should really get some research done and making sure they are acquiring animals from breeders who do everything in their power not to do those crosses uh, and well they don't do this crosses in the first place but to make really sure they know the background of their geckos mm -hmm. and on the other hand well <laughs> if i'm doing test crosses and a cool animal is head for tramper I'm not discouraged because I can only cross them in my cool tramper project. So I'm happy with that. And if they turn out to be not head for tramper, then I can test breed them for bell and maybe cross them into my bell project. So there are always more than one ways, you know, using an animal in breeding in a way that it's beneficial for, for your projects and, and for the health of your projects. I think it is not a good thing to be discouraged by this term pure and um, focus on the term pure. I think we should focus on quality and starting with physical, healthy, health-wise quality and only select breeders that are really capable mm -hmm. doing the reproduction part as they would do in nature. So meaning the females that don't have problems laying eggs, the mates that aren't that aggressive, animals that are growing good, growing fast, don't develop, you know, um, metabolic bone disease or whatever, um, don't have inbreeding signs and issues. I think this is something that we should really focus about. And I think this gets always lost a little when we are talking about pure and the problems that I have with pure is on one hand, as we talked in detail, there is no guarantee, you know, to get the head free part. But on the other hand, it's no use for me breeding all my pure electrics together and then dwelling into, oh, I'm so good. I'm so great. I'm just breeding pure electrics. And after three generations, they just are getting sick out of inbreeding depression. And I'm at the end of my journey before it has even begun. So. Um, I think we have to use the terms carefully and mm -hmm. we shouldn't be so focused and obsessed with it in our <laughs> in our scene right now because at the end, 
the nature of the situation is so more complex that we need to approach this from the scientific side and need to focus on the animal's health and vigo first and then carefully think about how much it really plays a role for the animal's well-being. I mean, a pure animal, what is pure? Is 80% still pure? Is 100% pure? For me personally, I can tell from, from the last 15 years that I have made so good experiences with outcrossing. And I never lost the original look of the animals, but it is due to a complex and well-thought-out breeding program. And we are always carefully managing the balance between the phenotype and the genotype, meaning um, we never go the short route. We never, you know, take the brightest, reddest electric to become the next best breeder. We breed so long, maybe two or three seasons until we get an animal that has exceptional health and the best color. So this mm -hmm. is the one that I'm accepting into my breeding program. And as we said in the last episode, and I remember as a, as a horse breeder, you don't take, you know, the first foal out of, of, of your mare and start breeding with it if you're clever. You're testing different studs and then you're taking the best of those foals to continue your line. But this can't be done in one season, right? Mm -hmm. It needs that you need to wait until the horse is grown and, you know, you can really evaluate its potential and be truly honest. And if it doesn't fulfill the requirements health-wise, then it needs to be a pet. It needs to live with you as a pet or it needs to have a new home with wonderful people who are happy to have such a brilliant and a nice, uh, you know, horse or gecko at their home. And then you try again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that... Uh... We'll get into the genetic testing a little bit as well, because I think that's a fascinating side. I mean, even just the collateral damage in some sense of test breeding, creating animals that you don't necessarily need just to see if there's a head in there, you know, that kind of solves some yeah. of those issues. But so we will get into that. But I'm just curious, like we take the, the electric, for example, uh, that Kelly established. Can you maybe just and this kind of leads us into our and you, you kind of mentioned some of the, you know, dominant versus recessive, the, the simple gene, genetic uh, traits versus the polygenetic traits. Can you kind of walk us through how Kelly may have established the electric morph? It, it, like, was this was her? Was she just looking for animals that had a, a more orange or more red, and then slowly over time was working towards something more and more? Like, at what point was she like, okay, now this is a I would consider this a morph, essentially. Mm. Well, I have to say that unfortunately, I never really had a deep personal contact with Kelly. She, you know, got aware of my work. And of course, I was a big fan and admirer of her work at the time. And I was very honored that she decided um, to grant my request. And I was just, you know, getting contact with her carefully, respectfully, if it would be possible in the future to acquire some of them. And after time, she decided, yeah, I'll give you a try. I'll give you a male first and then the females later. So um, Volcano was the very first male that we imported, he was the first red, truly red, reddish or red uh, leopard gecko, um, tangerine leopard gecko in Europe. And then after that, the females came. And uh, I can't really say for sure what went through her mind because unfortunately, I she was busy, I totally understand. And I also was pretty shy and I wasn't, you know, as experienced as I'm right now so i didn't want to bother her too much <laughs> maybe i should have but i can only guess from from yeah. the information that i that 
I got over the years and my personal feeling and experience with that line, um, what 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 her thoughts might have been. So let's start with what we know for sure for the fact she was breeding an tangerine line called Neves tangerines, and uh, they were nothing really spectacular. Um, they were just you know yellow orange geckos and out of those geckos she hatched an animal that changed everything and that animal's name was Electra and she was the very very first electric the, the founding mother and she came out of a female called Roxy so um, in my opinion I mean I don't I, th I think maybe Marsha would, would differ with me here because maybe she has more information um, I need to ask her but um in my personal feeling, Roxy was, like I said, the founding mother of the first true electric. In my eyes, personally, Electra was the first true electric with those spectacular phenotype. She was pure lavender and red when, when she was a baby and when she grew up with some small dark spots over there. This whole gecko looked so spectacular. The, I still remember those... Um, those pictures going around on gecko forums for years and people were so excited because this was this was something that nobody had seen before and a whole new potential and so she decided to name the line after this first animal electra so naturally what happens of course i think that she paired roxy and electra with fitting males it's she thought would fit best and then she used this offspring and tried to recreate that look of that original female. So what she did was of course um, getting a variety of offspring, some more red, some some less and then she, you know, over many, many years she tried to improve this uh, look and managed and strengthen it in a very specific phenotype that was very unique and clearly visibly apart from everything else that we had and as soon as that work was complete she started selling the the first ones um as, at least out of out of us <clears throat> so i think that the first part uh, in many polygenic or live breeding projects is that you start with an animal that is truly unusual and then you're trying to reproduce it. And many people try to reproduce it by using inbreeding techniques. So going back to the father, going back to the mother, going back to the brother, which is not always the right approach. Um, or you can completely outcross or you can do both. So you can start two different colonies. And what I really like to do is... Um, at first, I want to get a clear understanding of those genes that I'm working with and I think this this can be done by doing carefully selected closer breedings and carefully selected outcrossings and the goal in both is to you know avoid the possibility of health problems and at the same time thinking very clearly what to cross into this line it's because everything that you bring now on new genes into this new animal will alter the look of the next generation so um it's not an easy game this is why it's called master breeding 
as you know, some people are very talented in this and succeed. They have, they seem to have the right feeling, what goes with what, and others, they, they struggle or some projects, even for a very talented breeder, they go very smoothly and very good. And other projects, they are a pain in the back, mm -hmm. so to speak. And um, yeah, it's a, it, I think many things can be achieved over time. Not everything can be achieved. You also have to know your limitations. You have to know what is, you know, um, a realistic goal for five years or 10 years and what's just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not really worth the time and the effort. And uh, for example, should a leopard gecko have six toes instead of five toes? So which leopard gecko needs six toes? So. I don't know. And then we have some mutations, of course, that are that we have to see from an ethical standpoint. I um, really remember well the um, big discussion we had about the curly tails. Mm -hmm. And there are the, the opinions differ. I know we have curly tails in dog breeds and they are widely accepted. Uh, I know in the leopard gecko scene that this was, this was quite a discussion and a debate that is going on until today. Is it really worth you know, um, following this, uh, yes or no, that is up to everyone's opinion. I personally um, am someone, and that's just my personal feeling and also my personal heritage from from the years that, that I spent at university. Although, I, as I said, I didn't finish. But if you're working with animals and if you have the advantage um, learning in this environment, it changes you and i think it changed me for for the better i became more conscious about certain things so what i do not accept in my breeding program at all are you know any um deformities or abnormalities that you know at all i'm just strict there i want to i want to be more conservative when it comes to anatomy but mm -hmm. I'm very creative when it comes to the paint job. So I think this is a fair way of, of seeing it because I want to, to breed anatomy-wise like nature would select. I'm selecting strong animals, um, healthy animals, um, good eaters with, you know, I also take, we had this also in the last podcast, a little bit more, you know, uh, things into consideration like character, of, of course, yeah. But um, I think... What I, where I want to go with this is um, breeding for polygenetic traits is so much more complex than, for example, in the ball python game. And this was also part of your question in the ball python game. If you're just stacking single genes on top of each other, it's pretty easy to achieve. I mean, you need to know how genes work and then you need to follow this. If you have a super form of a and you have a super form of B and you know, okay, both are co-dominant or incomplete dominant, you end up with some luck uh, with babies that have 100% copies of both genes. In bald pythons, we have some um, some exceptions, for example, in the in the uh, blue-eyed loicistic complex where some um, forms tend to be allelic this is a very cool switch that i don't see often if at all in leopard geckos this is something that i find very very uh 
interesting that in ball pythons, for some reason, some genes, um, they don't go with each other. So you can't stack them on, on top of each other. So if, say, you have parent A who has a super form, so both copies of the gene from a loicistic complex gene 1, and the father the same super form but loicistic complex 2, you might end up with babies that express the one gene or the other and not both. So depending on what genes you work with, you really need to understand what is happening. And luckily, the knowledge is all there, but you need to do your homework and you need to navigate a little bit through this jungle. And leopard geckos uh, breeding is, you know, more polygenic and at least the things that I work with, with, which makes it easier for me because polygenic means that in most cases, the traits can't be covered so much by by the things that I put together. I also stack genes, but I do it more. Hmm, how can I say it in a in a more advanced way way than just you know getting gene one and gene two and then pairing those and and stacking them on top of each other. Of course, you can get cool effects, but working with polygenetic factors can really open doors because in, you know, let's um, stay in the example of the electrics. Electric is one line of tangerine. We have so many different tangerine lines. And if you would take the time and the efforts, you could create, I think, five or 10 lines out of the electrics in the future. So this mm. is no problem. You can't do this when you're just simply stacking, you're stacking genes on top of each other. So I personally am in love with the possibilities and the variety that that line breeding allows me, that this doesn't mean that I don't have also other genes in my repertoire and that I don't love them. It's just that I made a conscious decision to focus on certain genes that I love to work with, which by chance happen to be mostly polygenic uh, genetic mm. uh, factors. And I think for people listening, like one thing that I always use as a, as a kind of a good example is of a polygenetic trait in humans would be height. You know, obviously height, you know, if you have a short person and a tall person, if they have a baby, they might have somebody, you know, you might have a mix or like a baby that might be a medium height as an adult or maybe a little bit taller, but it's not binary. Like you would see in like a blue eye or a brown eyed situation. And, you know, you could continue to, let's say, breed taller and taller humans and, uh, you know, eventually have taller and taller offspring or go the other direction. But there's more than one gene that's affecting height so it would yeah. be the same as, as color and if, so i think like like you're saying if you're working with polygenetic traits there's almost less of a temptation to immediately inbreed like there would be when you're working with recessive traits right because you immediately want to see that that like you said incomplete dominant trait become dominant and see it or, or recessive trait you know having both those those genes in the in the animal the easiest way to do that is through a quick direct inbreed and with that comes all these other issues well, I think we have to separate the breeding technique from the genes because I think personally you can do fantastic breeding with dominant and recessive genes if you mm. do it responsibly. So I think this is more a matter of your personal preference and your the way that, that you choose to go in breeding rather than the genes itself that you work with. I personally would say that for a beginner, for a starter, um, choosing a simple gene um, 
to truly understand how it's working and, and what it's doing is a perfect start. But that doesn't mean that that you have to start that way. I think it is important that you really start with something you love and that you take the time to truly understand it in the first place. And that means reading books, getting in the internet, but not, you know, buying every information you hear there, really make your background research. And if somebody is telling you something about lavender, then Google them. Find out if they truly have lavender, if they worked with it, how long they have worked with it, and look at their results. If those animals have not even a hint of lavender on their body, maybe their advice and understanding of this mutation isn't as good as the colleague who has a lot of lavender for years in, in his gene pool. So um, I think as always, and that's why I love those discussions, um, those topics are so complex and they offer so many, many opportunities to see it from, from different angles. And that's what I really want to do here. Mm -hmm. um, I think... Personally, yes, polygenic is more difficult or can be more tricky. But on the other hand, we have a really nice and interesting effect that few people know about. So if you're taking, for example, a line like the lavender line, in my case, who has been line bred since 2005, after a certain um, amount of generations and in my case it happened after the 10th generation so approximately after 10 years those animals um, they really begin to change their behavior their genetic behavior so let's say in the early stages I had a gecko with a little bit of lavender and if I really wanted another baby with a little bit of lavender, I had to look out for the best lavender partner and then pair them and then hope for the best. And I would still end up with some animals not expressing the lavender. Why? Because lavender is highly polygenic. It is not a color itself. It is easily covered by yellow and uh, dark and red pigments. But what happened after 10 years is that you get a kind of um, almost dominating effect. If you line breed a project long enough and you concentrate and stack the genes um, of polygenetic traits, you end up with offspring that expresses those desired traits in higher and higher amount of numbers. So not only did the amount of lavender increase with the time, but also the amount of offspring who increased this high percentage increased with the right line just breeding. Eliminating the genes that are counterintuitive or counteracting the lavender. So eventually you're dealing with a gene pool that has less. Uh, maybe, no less. or yeah, okay. maybe I just, just, you know, selected the animals who could express those desired look the best right for whatever reason so and and we are talking about polygenics here because it is assumed that more than one gene is doing its job in order to create a lavender gecko that is holding its color so what you have and this is the secret if you're buying from a breeder who is really doing his homework and has lime bread for a long time um, you can outcross them and you still get lavender babies to some extent or maybe even at a high extent. And you can work with them as if they would behave dominant for one or two generations. And this is called polygenetic dominance. And this is also an effect that is confusing many people that is right now also confusing in the lime breeding snow scenes because remember, we're having one dominant or 
incomplete dominant uh, snow gene, which is the max snow. So if you pair a max snow to normal, you get 50% max snow, 50% normal. If you pair a max snow with a max snow, you get 25% super snows. And um, if you pair super snow and super snow, you get 100% super snow. So the super snows, they are black and white. They have no amount of yellow at all. In the max nose, they still have some amount. So this is a classic example how an incomplete dominant gene works. If the animal expresses one copy, you can clearly see it and distinguish it from its normal siblings, but it still has some of the, the, the wild type or the other looks shining through, whether in its pure form, when two copies come together, this gene blocks everything else. Then what matters for this gene? In this type, it's a snow the name is self-explaining. It is supposed to be white. And then, of course, you know, we, we have two linebred snows or several linebred snow lines, um, the urban gecko, the tuck snows, the gem snows, and we have the albay snow. So we have three of them. I'm sorry. Um, sometimes my mind is quicker than <laughs> my tongue. <laughs> I'm already at the next sentence. So three forms of linebred snows and some of them really behave almost like max nose, meaning depending where you buy them from, um, it can happen that you have your limebred snow, you pair it with a normal and you get some snows and some non-snows. And now people were totally confused and like, what is this? So we are still trying to figure it out again without a gene test. We can't say for certain, is it possible that there has a new mutation being popped up in all those line breeding and some of those animals are now really, you know, acting dominant. It could be. I personally rather prefer the option and explanation because that is also what I learned in university and what I also see very often that it is very often a case of this polygenetic dominance. When you breed limebred snows for 10, 20, 30 years, you will have in the first generations this effect that they behave like dominant, but it will wash out. So over time, if you really outcross them again and again and again, after three or four uh, generations, you will see almost nothing of this original line bred trait, whether on the contrary in Maxnose, I can outcross them for 10 generations and I will always get my genetic ratio approximately 50% snows, 50% normal from any max snow to normal pairing. So nothing will change, no matter if I breed them two years or 30 years. And mm -hmm. that is the, the big difference. And I think we still have so much to learn. I'm open for, for many possibilities, but this is especially why we had this talk about the importance of gene tests in the future, um, there's still so much to learn. And I think it would open doors and possibilities for us in order to understand those genes better, do our work more responsible for the benefit of the animals, which brings me to the second point, which is so important and what you already talked about. We would get rid finally of all those unnecessary test crossings that produce so many uh, pet quality um, geckos that end up in PetSmart or wherever and, you know, are over flooding the market and are not always getting the best homes. So this is something that really concerns me. For example, if I want to test breed um, for males correctly, I need at least eight or 10 females 
And mm-hmm. imagine all those eggs, imagine all those babies. And now they're worth nothing. And in worst case, they are not suitable for breeding because if I need to test breed a bell for head for tramper, I need to do as a responsible breeder what is forbidden in theory to do the forbidden crossing and cross those two animals. A responsible breeder will make sure that those animals will never go into breeder hands. But the problem is the market is demanding no known heads and, you know, pure animals. So many, especially new breeders, are forced into thinking that test crossing is always the option number one without thinking about the consequences, ending up with babies they can't really sell to the right people and maybe selling them to the pet trade. And I have worked in the pet trade and I know that not all people who buy in the pet trade are keepers. Some of them are also breeders looking for a cute or unusually looking gecko and some geckos accidentally reproduce in other homes. So then we have those babies, the next generation entering the pet market. And especially if they're beautifully colored, they will always find people who will buy them, but they will also use them for breeding. So we are polluting our own gene pool by trying to get rid of a problem. And this is something that we have to keep in mind. Is test crossing bad? Of course not. It is necessary, unfortunately, right now in some projects. And it is something that every responsible breeder um that is it is something that every responsible breeder has to deal with and has to address and take seriously but on the other hand we could cut the market from those unwanted double heads triple heads whatever if we would stop doing the test crossings the genetics and instead you know switching to gene tests and this would be for the animals it would be not harmful. I just need a shed. The reptile is shedding anyway. And just imagine, I have 10 babies and I can tell you right now which ones i going to keep and, and which ones to sell in breeder homes and which ones not to sell to breeder homes. Imagine that I could now test breed my entire collection and find out who is head for what. And this thought alone could be, I, I get that, overwhelming for some people like oh how can I afford that you can afford that step by step or what do I do if I find out that my my gecko has an undesired trait well in most cases it won't make really a difference you just need to switch the project and if you are unlucky enough to have an animal that is double head then well that happens and it's better that than that you know than accidentally putting it into your breeding program and polluting your whole line for generations to come and and bringing the problem to to the people who buy from you and the ones who buy from them after. So we need to carefully see the benefits and I think they weigh so much more and it is also so much cheaper. It is more mm-hmm. animal friendly, it is more, you know, Cost and time efficient. You don't have to house 50 geckos more just because you want to do some test crossings. You don't have to worry about selling them. And I think this is also what responsible breeding of the future would be about in my eyes, to have the option so that you can choose. I don't say that it might be the right thing for everybody. I would be delighted. I would grab the chance, the first chance I would, you know, 
get because I know for sure that I could use this space for other projects, for example, for this almost extinct bloodline that I now have to cut back because my customers ask me, is this, uh, have you done test crossings? And I can't say, no, I'm not doing test crossings because they are not doing sense. So I, I need to do them at one point or the other. But my heart always bleeds and I never feel comfortable with doing them. And I would be so thankful if we would get an animal-friendly alternative and it would also really contribute raising the whole quality and standard of the whole leopard gecko uh, morph of, of, of the market. And it would certainly help a lot of breeders save precious time and money and um, save many animals from an unsure fate. Yeah, I mean, exactly. If you Even if the genetic testing is a little bit upfront a cost, over the long run, you're obviously saving a lot of money by not having to deal with all this offspring and time selling them and getting the baby started and all that, and and then having babies that you don't necessarily want. So maybe we could just lay this out. How how would genetic testing work? Because it does exist now with the ball python community, and yeah. I, I just imagine that they run through the ball python genetics and highlight the certain areas, the certain genes that are known. Because the other thing we have to remember is morphs. We sometimes think of them as like a complete list. Like these are the different phenotypical. Uh, patterns that can show up in an animal. Really, it's like an endless amount and things that haven't popped up yet could pop up and we won't necessarily have a test for those, I guess. But how does it work in the ball python world and then how could it be transferred to leopard geckos? Yeah, so basically what they did in the ball python uh, morph testing was at first create a genome for the ball python, meaning they collected many, many samples and trying to get a complete genetic code of the species, of the ball python species. So once they had that, it and the problem is it, it cost several thousands of dollars. So I think it was, a, what was it about 20, 30K? I don't really know to, to establish that. But once you have that, um, you know that certain genes are on certain places. So you start now trying to figure out which gene lies where it's like getting a card you know like like the, the monopoly board and now you're putting your you know your symbols carefully on it so that 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 would be maybe an example that that people are that helping people to understand what's behind this so first you need the complete genome and after that you can work on one morph at a time so basically what happens is they would for example ask what is the most common morph let's say maybe it's in ball pythons possibly i don't know pastel probably and then they would ask for um different breeders uh to send the, the sheds of visual pastels that are 100 sure i mean with pastels it's not a problem but yeah and then of course with the recessives it would be albinos so they would need um, 100% visual albinos and then they would take the shed of all those albinos and, and see if there's any similarity and you know narrow down the exact gene and then they, they have it. And then once they have it, they can test for it. So whenever a new shed then from, from another snake comes in, if she has the exact same marker at the same spot as those 20 or 50 or 100 albinos that you know were used to create this gene test, then it's pretty certain that this is the right uh, gene they're looking for. 
And um, so it continues, so the journey. So you need to develop each genetic, for each and every genetic mutation, you develop an own gene test. And of course, this takes time and it takes money. So I think fundraising is is the way to go. The Ball Python community has done an exceptional job. I really have to do a big shout out here to collect the money, to make this happen very fast, very quick. We are now at a stage after, I think it's two years now, since the first chats were offered, maybe, maximum. So we we are now at a stage where you can test for, I think, at least 20 mutations right now. It's crazy. And nobody in the leopard gecko scene or any other species scene has, has come to the idea to start something similar. So I think it's time that especially with the leopard gecko community where we have all those morphs and also other reptile uh, species where, where there are color morphs, it would be really beneficial to start thinking now, how can we make this happen? How can we as a community of breeders and keepers come together, collect the money and get those gene tests developed? Because, yeah. Mm-hmm. Those, well, those company can't do it on their own because it is too cost effective. In return, they offer, you know, affordable prices for the people to test. So I think it's no use if, if you wait for a company to invest all those money and then have a snake shed test going for a few hundred bucks, especially in leopard gecko, it wouldn't be feasible. So I think the other road would be very, very good to, to collect money, to come together as a community and make it happen. Well, and the other thing I think is it, I imagine this process should whittle away the, the morphs or the mutations that don't, that, that, that don't go with a healthy animal, right? We have lots of different mutations that pop up and the animals aren't healthy, whether it's kink spines or all these different things. And the ball python world did get kind of carried away, like letting things go, you know, strange skull shape and whatnot. And it seems to be starting to straighten out, you know, spider and whatnot, starting to weed its way out and people aren't working with those genetic or, you know, those specific mutations anymore. But having the map of the genetic test would allow us to kind of keep focused on the animals that are robust and healthy and make excellent pets and don't have these health issues while still allowing people to work with with the morphs. I mean, I've always said I don't have an issue with the morphs. I have an issue with the practices that come along with the morph production, which is overproduction, you know, unethical keeping creating animals that aren't healthy, you know, all those different things we've talked about in the past. And I think we talked about in the last episode so if genetic testing would allow us to really do a damage in a good way on the animals that aren't healthy and, and the, the mutations that come along with health concerns. Yeah, and on the bright side, you can end up like like so many snake breeders, you can come up with some pleasant surprises that you didn't know that the female you bought was had for a very desirable trait, like, for example, I don't know, clown. Then you know, oh, she's also had for clown. That is so cool. I have clown mail. Just happens in my collection that would go perfectly with her. I never got the idea, but now I can try. So we can, with a gene test, first of all, you have the knowledge. You can do your job better, more responsible. You can reduce significantly the amount of animals that are not fit for the market, where the market is clearly oversaturated, and you can increase Instead, and focus on projects that really make sense, where there is a market, where there is demand, and where there are people who are more than willing to give those animals a loving, caring home. And this is something that I I truly believe would be so much more easier with the gene tests. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree. And and as you were saying, especially in leopard geckos, having 
and I, and I don't know if this is in ball pythons, but in boas for sure, you know, you have several different types of albina or albinism and you know they they can't be mixed so that would really when you when you have an albino leopard gecko can you visually tell what strain of albinism it's carrying or do they all look similar like i, I want to say in boas you could tell they look slightly different like between the sharp and the call albino or whatever they're called yeah and albinos you can do that although sometimes of course they're always the one or the other example where it's a little bit more tricky but i have what concerns me more is actually the eye mutations because they look so similar and they're not compatible with each, with each other. So you just know by try and error. And um, I don't really think it makes sense mixing those willingly to, to each other. It, it really adds to confusion. It really adds to animals that you can't use in breeding programs. And on the other side, I just had the experience that I invested good money last year in buying from few selected sources and I test bred them, of course, because I had to. I, I have my own lines here and projects that I've line bred for over 10 years. So I need to know what's getting into my lines before they ever genetically enter my collection. And let's say I got some unexpected surprises that are really bothering me. Yes, there are, there are animals that, that are perfectly fit and will enter my breeding program and I will be very happy. But there are also animals that unfortunately will have to go to um, yeah either pet-only terrarium here in my own rack or they will have to go to a, a place who really ensures me that they are not breeding with them because they carry undesired traits. And this is very, very... Um, tricky for for a breeder you know to sell those animals because it, it's not your fault in the first place but on the other hand you produce these animals and your name name tag is on them so mm -hmm. it is it's really difficult to sell those animals to the right places and this is always my main concern that they the animals come into right homes and i don't want to deal on a bigger scale with you know animals that i have struggled placing in the right homes and having to worry all the time if people you know treat them responsible or not abusing them genetically for you know following their their desire to to maybe make a cool baby because at the end there are so many routes that you can take to reach a goal if your goal is a red gecko there are so many other options you do not depend on this one animal and i think this is the number one mistake that that people in the ball python scene are making when they're starting out and especially many leopard gecko people also bird dragon people the animal looks great but for some reason it has a health defect or it has an undesired trait and a trait that is genetically becoming very troublesome when mixed into your colony and they think Oh, I need to pair this female. I know she's a king spine, but I need her. She has exactly that look. You know, you don't need her. I guarantee you. I have had this situation so many times in my breeding years. For 15 years, that was more than I can count on. It's more often that you have an animal that you wish you could breed, but you can't, than an animal that is perfect and you say, oh yeah, I'm so happy this can go right into the next phase of breeding and, and sire the next generation. But, and this is the core message, and I can, can guarantee you this guy's out of personal experience. I have always found a better road. I have always found an equally beautiful 
or equally qualified animal who has given me the same result or even better results. May it be that you contact the breeder again. May it be, if it's from your own offspring, that you repeat the original pairing and take the best baby next year instead of this year. There are so many possibilities for you to play around and get what you want. But please um, think careful what you put into the next generation because this is like building a house. It's not, I always say breeding reptiles especially is not playing rugby. You're not playing rugby. You're playing a game of chess. And if you're making the wrong moves, you are limited. And then you will lose the game because you can't Mm -hmm. move that well. Or you expose yourself too much so that the other one can move and kick you out the game. So think careful about the consequences and fear the consequences more than, than focus on the desired outcome. Because who cares at the end it didn't make a difference if I achieved the goal that I desired in one year or in two years. It doesn't make such a difference. I know I've been very impatient at the beginning and I know the struggle, but it's really not worth it. And on the contrary, I have reached my goals even faster because I was so strict and selecting and uh, in deciding to you know, only let top quality enter the next generation. And then I had a strong foundation. I had a really strong house that I could, you know, build up and up and up without the building collapsing and and falling down because this is what ultimately happens also on the ball python scene. If you are going the fast way, if you're using those animals who have kinked spines or, um, you know, neurological problems and and all that stuff or are just bad eaters. In the ball python game, the same, exactly the same thing, even more dramatic than in the leopard gecko game. If you have, if you're just selecting your, your snakes just for the genes they carry and you don't care if she's a picky eater because yeah, it's, it's, it's bad, but you know, it's not that bad. She, she's 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 getting it somehow. Maybe next year will be better. No, I mean, <laughs> you can see as an experienced breeder right from the start which of your babies are good and steady eaters and gross and which ones are not. And if you stay away from the ones that are not and you take your time, then this is also polygenic at its finest, guys. Mm-hmm. Then you end up with females. If, you, if you're getting the strongest pound of female, and you're keeping and you're keeping the best daughter who also grows the fastest, eats, you know, never refuses a meal, is not really picky and only eating the silky reds, but also the normal reds and also frozen reds. Then after two, three, four generations, which, you know, time flies by faster than you think, you can indeed create a, a line of ball pythons that are aggressive and good eaters because that's what nature is looking for. Nature doesn't care about color. In, in Africa, you'll die if you refuse every mouse that passes your nose. I mean, you don't know when the next one is coming, right? Could be a month, could be a week. So nature selects like you need to, to, to do what's important for, for your species to survive. And what I see and what is very important with a good and healthy eating reflex, with a good growing rate, with a good and steady ability to recover from breeding, no matter if you're talking about female snakes or female leopard geckos, egg production is always, um, you know, a a very, uh, yeah, how can I say, um, 
consuming thing for for the female body um by selecting the right females and and also taking care that the males also showed showing the desired traits you can get rid of so many other problems because what happens and i don't know why this is there is still you know scientific work to be done but this is something very interesting that also was talked about a little bit here and there in university it seems that with a good and steady growing rate and all those desired traits that nature selects you exclude some other problems meaning on the contrary the ones who are slow growers, who are not good eaters, they have a higher risk of also being linked to certain genes that cause problems like underbite, overbite, bulgy eyes, inbreeding depression, of course, also playing a role in this. But, you know, even if you're doing line breeding and even if you decide to go a little bit more into the inbreeding corner. I'm not talking about um, sibling pairings or uh, parental and and child pairings. I'm I'm talking about cousins, great grand cousins, and so on. Even there, if you decide to go only for color, then that's what you get. All that that's all what you get is color. Um, if you're deciding to go for the most vital animals, you can go even with inbreeding into a direction where those animals strongly give those desired healthy traits to the next generation which makes them more immune to the undesired things that Mm. we see that come with inbreeding so as you see inbreeding line breeding it's all a double-edged sword and it depends on whether you truly understand what you're doing when playing with those genes and select the right genes wisely and not think about only what you want to create in phenotype but also what you cause by choosing the whole package in this female. If you're having two sisters and the one has the better color, but she's a shitty eater, I would advise to take the sister that Mm -hmm. maybe expresses the color not as nicely, but is a healthy and steady eater because she is a foundation animal that you can build on. And if you choose the right male, her babies might have just as much potential being significantly better in the next generation. And best case, you get the female that you want in both phenotype and genotype in the next generation, worst case in the generation after. But you're not in here for the quick game if you want to win. You're in it for the long run. That's such a it's such a key point. I mean, I think the main message there is there's there's really no undo button or back button. So once you've put something in motion, this is how it's going to be. And if you if you have bad genetics in there, like I think the house example is good. Like if if one beam in your basement is made out of rotten wood and you continue to build your house on top, like you can't go back and undo all the work on top of that and remove the house and fix the foundation. It's too late. Like it's already been done. So <clears throat> it's just such a. I think patience is 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 the name of the game there. And and I think it's it's an important piece of advice to say like yeah. Maybe it takes a generation or two longer, but you've always come to the goal that you've wanted to aim for uh, by, by not taking the fast and easy solution. So I think that that's key. And I have a couple questions about um, just about health and the quality of the animal in general, especially when it comes to leopard geckos. And, and I think, you know, you're mentioning albinos are quite a, a, a popular morph. Is there any... Do you have any health issues or concerns with with that particular mutation? Because they are they are kind of a foundation for a lot of other, you know, phenotypical traits. 
Not really. <laughs> I, I see more problems with other mutations. For example, mm. um, Enigma, for obvious reasons, um, Enigmas have a lot of neurological disorders. I also see it in some way in yellow. And now there are also the question now arises. And this would also be clear with a gene test. Do we really have the problem in the white and yellow? Because those are, you know, those animals are just so similar to the enigma. Do they lie on the same complex? Or could it be that maybe some enigma genes, you know, have mask itself and mixed and mingled with the very similar white and yellow and some white and yellows are actually you know um, a, a part or partial uh, also enigma or come from enigma lines. So this is all something that we truly, truly do not understand fully as of now and I think we would uh, truly understand better. Coming with a gene test, coming back to the albinos, um, yes, they are light sensitive in compared to to not non-albinos, but I have two of the of the three strains. I'm working with them for years, and I can't really say that it hinders them uh, really that much when the when you hold them in bright sunlight they they will close their eyes but they are not you know um in any trouble finding directions or navigating or something and as soon as you dim the lights a little bit more or as soon as they have a little shadow they act completely normal so um we really also have to think about um what mutation causes which effect i think with the albino it's it's just a matter of taste but on the other hand, there are mutations that are causing um, real troubles. And also with the curly tail discussion, um, we have to be aware that the critique is that I find valuable is, yes, um, it shouldn't concern the gecko as much if only the tip of the tail is curled. But this is a generation and a mutation that seems to also have a strong, you know, uh, tendency of getting stronger and stronger due to polygenic breeding uh, the further you go into it. So meaning that if you focus on curly tails, of course, you want the tails to be curly and curly and curlier. And at a certain point, you're reaching the, the, the spine, the, you know, the, the, and once you're past the point of the hips, I think it will cause real troubles to the animals. And I also think that they need the tail for communication. So the debate is still open. Um, there are still fans of the curly tails and there are people who are against it. I personally do not breed them because I want to make sure that they they really can you know, express themselves as they would do in nature, because I also realized that sometimes they use the tip of the tail um, for for grabbing onto your finger. If you're, you know, if you're holding them and they want to reach a lower point, sometimes they really use a, a part of their tail to, to get a little bit more security and they couldn't mm -hmm. do that with a curly tail. So this is my personal taste. It is no offense to, to people, you know, who think otherwise. As I said, I want to make sure in this podcast and all the other podcasts that there are different opinions that we might not always have the answer and that most of all um, a scientific and, and you know, calmly based respectful discussion is the key to everything. It is no use, you know, picking a 
you know, a camp and from there hating all others, it blinds you for the, the real truth, which is often behind, you know, the borders. And, and as I said, the world is most often gray and your success as a reptile breeder, no matter if you're breeding ball pythons or tegus or monitors or whatever, or leopard geckos, the real success as a breeder on the long term is strongly determined whether you are able to see those shades of colors or if you only see black and white because then mm -hmm. you're in one corner you have one mindset and you are not able to move you're blinded by yeah. your opinion and the opinion that others strongly cast upon you and i think nobody has the right to cast his opinion and put it over everybody else implying if you're not with me then you're against me or if you do not agree with me 100 percent, then it's because you have no clue so i think what we learned, especially hopefully in the last month as a reptile community, is that kindness and respect are so important and that it is all about the journey of learning and understanding and that we are all currently still in a very interesting time where we discover so many new things and new concepts where new scientific papers come out dealing with reptiles reptiles have been so neglected um in in so many parts of of science and now they are slowly making you know their way into those papers and i'm so excited every time i, I see a new paper coming out and also um some mammal papers are are raising questions whether this could be something that would be worth diving into and and, and looking up in in reptiles so I think it is a very cool time. I'm very confident from what I've seen, not only from the the, the classic, you know, veterinary standpoint, but also I had the, the privilege, you know, uh, being some time in a animal um, behavioral center where they really focused on science of of canines and and wolves and. This was such an interesting place to be there and it really opens your mind to all the possibilities and then you read those those studies about beluga whales and crows uh, who are you know able to to see themselves in the mirror if you put for example there was a very interesting study years ago about crows and if you put a a speck a drop of a paint on their chest and you set them in front of the mirror only beluga whales and uh, those and yeah some other few species and uh, the, the the birds were able to to see that. So um, the ravens or the crows uh, are the only ones, you know, from the birds who are able to to recognize themselves in the mirror because they will look at the mirror and they will look right at the spot. Mm -hmm. So they realize that's me in that mirror. Yeah. Where the other animals, they're just like, okay, yeah, maybe I don't know what this is. Maybe another creature <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever so there's so much to do and so much that we still don't know and the longer i spend with my animals um, the more i also see in leopard gecko behavior i think we touched this point roughly but not really in depth in the last interview um so often leopard geckos for example or ball pythons are said to be uh, yeah, they're they're beginner friendly and they're nice, but they're boring. So why do you yes. think they are boring? Because yeah, they they're lying around all day and all night and they basically don't move. I think first of all, it depends on the setup that you provide. 
Of course, a natural, diverse, stimulating environment offers more possibility. If, you, if you're putting a dog in a blanket crate, it will also not play around and, and have the possibilities yeah. than in a garden. I mean, this is self-understanding to some point or just just look at us if you're putting us in a blank space in a room without a chair without everything what will we do pretty not very much obviously mm. because th there's no stimulus there's nothing but if we put a library in there then we can read or we can watch tv or whatever so i think the environment plays a very very big factor but another factor is also your level of observation practice so the more i spent with my geckos the first years i kept them and i loved them but i think it became really interesting after five years because that was the first time when i had so much you know daily um experience with them that that i was able to to really see that difference in behavior and not only with individuals saying Saturn and Aurora, but also seeing that some traits really pass down generations. Mm -hmm. If I now handpick certain animals, sometimes I smile because I I I know before I before I check my records, I can tell you from the behavior, from the way they look and they behave, that this is one of Saturn's closer relatives. Because he's so intelligent, he really for the electrics. The electrics are very clever in comparison to some other. For example, the trampers. They are my big. I like their. I always like to say my tramper albinos. They are like the big great Danes. They're mm. puppy dogs. They're really friendly. They're so fun, and it's it's all about diversity. There's so much diversity in this one species. When I pick up my trampers, as I said. They're like the Great Danes. They're puppy dogs. They're so calm and, and so gentle. And they have such cool energy around them. I enjoy them so very much. But they're not the cleverest on this planet. So clearly, when I go to the electric corner, I see them watching me, fixating me. I see their head move and trying some of them trying to figuring out what I do. Some of them are already coming close and running towards the 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 uh, you know glass door when they see it's me and if somebody else comes in that they don't recognize they won't bother because you know they associate me with food and not everybody is doing this but but you can see that there are so small differences and significant differences in behavior and some patterns really have a genetic marker. They really show in the offspring and sometimes many generations after you had this, this original animal and this makes breeding so much more exciting. I think this clearly shows that leopard geckos and also ball pythons and probably most reptile species have so much more to offer than we think is possible right now because the more we dive into and the more we're trying to understand and see those little differences and, and trying especially as readers to enhance them the more they become obvious and and blossom into a direction that i've never thought would have been possible 10 years ago so the mm -hmm. animals clearly also in character that i have today are not comparable with what i had back then Partially because of genetic selection, but also partially because I wasn't really listening to them.
I wasn't really looking at the right things. And now that I can see those really fine differences, even in new animals that I acquire, it makes the whole thing, the whole keeping experience on, on a daily level, which is what is all about in the first place, you know, living with those amazing creatures, it makes it so much more fun and rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, and it adds a whole other dimension to, like you said, just just the act of keeping, but also the act of breeding and, and finding the animals that have the traits that you, you, like, obviously you'd be selecting for traits that make good pets, you know, whether, you know, the calmer demeanor and all, you know, good eaters, as you already mentioned. And so it adds a whole other piece to to the puzzle, which I think is, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we are working with animals that are in captivity and we want to make sure that we're producing animals that thrive in captivity rather than animals that cower or don't succeed because that's sort of, you know, that, that gets us back to the entire ethical question of whether or not we should be doing this in the first place. So if we can be doing something to the best of our abilities to make sure that the offspring are going to be better and better in a captive setting, that's only going to be a good thing. Exactly. And this is what it's all about. And another point where it's so exciting to be in the reptile hobby today for me, especially as a breeder, because I see that leopard gecko breeding was started 30 years ago. That isn't such a long time. It's roughly 30 generations. And now we see in my breeding stock and in other breeders' breeding stocks, this is a phenomenon that is not exclusively linked to my own, you know, collection of, of, of leopard geckos. This is happening everywhere. We are seeing a kind of domestication process happening. The animals getting more trustful. Um, Ten years ago was the first time where people suddenly referred to my pictures like, oh, your leopard geckos, they, they always snuggle up in your hand. They, they treat your hand like a throne. What, what's your secret? Do you, I don't know. <laughs> What do you put on your hands? Fish oil or whatever? So, so that or or do you bath your hands in mealworms before anything so that they don't get scared? And I thought about it, and then it became obvious to me that instinctively I have selected for character all along, all the time. And that was the time where I decided, okay, I'm now in taking this one step further. It was out of pure necessity for me or responsibility at the beginning to choose the males that are not aggressive in breeding, that treat the females friendly because they're sovereign. They they do not depend on, you know, mating every female right away. And aggressiveness is also something that is really um, strongly given and shyness in the next generation. So I didn't want that because, as you said, I put the animal's well-being first. I was totally, you know, aware of the fact that I'm breeding color morphs. I'm not breeding wild geckos, so they will never be released in the wild. They have to be in captivity, whether they like it or not, because they're glowing like avatar mushrooms in the night for every (laughs) eagle out in, in the desert. This is, you know, you can't miss this prey. So it was totally totally for me out of question whether I should select um, for the animals that thrive in the environment they are limited to, which is captivity or not. So of course I selected the males and the females who showed the least aggressive behavior, who were more trustful than others. It also made the whole process of handling so much more rewarding. And I can also see clearly the differences of some, not all, some leopard geckos that I import from other sources and uh, some of my lines. Yes, they, they all differ, definitely. But some of my lines are just 
became so naturally tame that it's ridiculous. They crawl on my hand right after birth. I've never heard a hissing sound from them. And if one of them hisses and I'm just calm, just calmly talking to them, it's all right, it's all right, girl, then they, they stop. And there are other geckos that, that, you know, maybe you've bought from other sources and they don't calm down. They have the release of stress hormones and they need such a long time to calm down and, you know, come back to normal compared to another gecko who's genetically set up to process stress in a totally different other way because the whole brain synaptic um, um what is it? Uh, the, 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 the whole brain is designed to work different. So whenever you have a stress reaction, you release stress hormones in your brain. So it's a little bit difficult for me to explain because I'm not an English native speaker, but yeah, please yeah, bear yeah. with me here. So um, the next step, once the out, uh, the, the, the stressor that causes your reaction is gone, uh, the second part that your body really struggles with in every animal and every human is to now get rid of the stress hormone because yes. stress and under stress the, the the body doesn't function perfectly. It's fight or flight. You can't fight, flight, and eat at the same time. And also some other body functions like digestion, etc. They are, um, you know, they have their limitations under stress. So, um, which is natural. And so every human being, but also every animal greatly, greatly um, profits from anything that allows him to process stress in a, in a different way. Meaning it's not a problem if you feel stressed, but it's a problem if you feel stressed and you can't get rid of the stress mm. quickly. So if you're in a stressful situation and you're able to calm down, we can do this consciously um, sometimes um, with special meditation, mini meditation techniques or thought techniques uh, in humans. And um, there's also, but still, we are also genetically linked to our heritage. Some people, as we know, they have a really different difficult time you know getting back to normal and they are more easily stressed than others they have a slower to uh, you know some people just have a, a higher tolerance than others yes. and some people are slower of feeling stressed than others and the same happens in animals with the big advantage as breeders that we can use this to our really um yeah, to, to the positive side, whether when we exactly decide which animals go into the breeding program and what stress does to the animal. So meaning that selecting animals that can, if they feel stressed, can relax sooner and go back to normal. They live happier lives in captivity and the owners are happier. <laughs> because yes. they enjoy handling more. The animals enjoy handling more. And this was the 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 point where it started, but what it led to, interestingly, is not only animals that can cope better with the stress and that make interacting less stressful for both animal and keeper and more fun and rewarding. It also now slowly is starting to turn into animals that actively seem to seek 
human interaction or seem to enjoy it rather than just tolerating it. And this is the exciting part. This is what really makes me wonder, what, what are we up to in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, if we follow this route? And then we have a complete domestication process. And then the question arises sooner or later, are we talking about wildlife when we're talking about reptiles or do they really deserve in their own right to be called pets? Mm -hmm. Are they really what they were when they entered the breeding program 30 years ago? I don't think so. I don't think we are already on a very interesting step in a very interesting direction. And hopefully, if we're doing our work right, it will lead to wonderful interactions with animals that really thrive in our care because they seek our care and enjoy it. I think that is incredibly well said. I, I think it's a fascinating time. Like you said, we're so early on in this phase. Who knows what the next 10 or 15, 20 years brings in this in this domain. So, Rebecca, you have so much information. You're a wealth of knowledge all the time. We've already been talking for almost two and a half <laughs> hours. There's a few things that we're going to still talk about, but maybe we need to leave some of that on the table because there's I, people will be asking for to have you back on anyway. I already know that. So <laughs> maybe we'll leave some of that because... Uh, this is already so much more information than people are probably expecting to have. So I think this was fantastic. Is there anything you want to say before we wrap up? Yeah, sure. First of all, uh, thank you so very much for having me again here. It's always a pleasure and great delight being here at the show, having so thoughtful and thought out conversations. I deeply enjoy and appreciate that. Um, second, yeah, if any one of the audience has specific questions we haven't uh, conquered and answered before, uh, drop your comments mm -hmm. and uh, let us know. We, we'd be happy to, to answer them for you. And yeah, as I said, many interesting things are right now going on behind the scenes of uh, Dragoon Gecko. We are just moving to a different place. So the uh, 2023 season has been a very good one for us breeding-wise so far. We could really step forward and make progress in the prog you know, programs and projects that are uh, most important to me. And we will continue this work in 2024 in a new facility with a brand new reptile room and hopefully also a new studio recording room where we can hopefully produce even better and more content for you guys. Um, also, for those of you who are leopard gecko keepers or breeders and thinking about um, getting a new leopard gecko in the future uh, from me, be aware that we do not sell on a regular basis, but we have the next sale event coming up in March. So um, feel free to contact me early on Instagram, especially, and uh, DM me about availability and also about um installment plans because we can offer payment plans and it's always good you know for you to know a little bit in advance you can think about what you want and we can let you know whether we can make it possible and also yeah hope that i'll get some feedback also on my channel what is interesting to you what you would like to see in the future so we can create the content that that you're most interesting and just a general thanks for the community who has been very nice and supportive for all those years and especially last year on Instagram. And I really can't believe we grew from zero to 5K in, in just a year. This is really, really amazing and it means a lot. And I'll do my best to, you know, um, let you guys uh, get an insight 
on a different side of breeding and maybe give you valuable information that you can use to make better choices in the future. Mm. I cannot wait to see you start producing more content and be in the new space. I think that's going to be amazing. And and uh, like you said, if, if there's more questions or more topics that you'd like to hear Rebecca cover, either yeah, put, definitely put it in the comments and that's something that you can cover in your content in the future. Or when we have you back on, we can get into a little more depth about some of those things if there's still questions people have, which I'm sure they are or will have. Can you make sure everybody knows the website and, and uh, Instagram handle? I think you've yeah, already sure. it, but just in case. <laughs> Our homepage is currently under reconstruction, but it is www.dragoongecko.com. And for all that want to stay super updated, uh, please go to my Instagram. It's dragoongecko. And of course, we are also on Facebook at dragoongecko. Awesome. Well, Rebecca, it's always a pleasure to chat with you. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And of course, we'll we'll have you again on the uh, again on the future. Again, thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, you know what I mean. (laughs) It would be a great honor. Thank you so much for all you do for the reptile industry and the, you know, so different topics and uh, difficult topics that you cover and have covered. I think you're adding a great diversity and you're a great source of knowledge for anybody, you know, really looking for, for actual information. So, Thank you from the bottom of my heart for providing this for the reptile community. Thank you very much for saying that. (laughs) All right, that is the end of that episode. Rebecca, again, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. You have so much information to share. And I know there's a couple of bullet points that we didn't even get to on my notes today that we've left on the table for next time. And listeners, if you find things that that kind of popped up as questions in your head while you're listening to this episode, please put it in the comments on YouTube or send me a message or you can comment on Spotify as well. We'll start to kind of build up some questions and some topics for the next one. Like I said, we, I still have things that I didn't get to with her today, but we will still record another one in the future. And I'd love to have more input from you guys as far as questions and comments go, because she does have a lot of information and it'll be fascinating to watch her content develop as she moves into her new space. So definitely keep an eye open for that. You can check to the show notes too, to find links to her page. If you enjoyed this episode, sharing it on social media is one of the best things you can do to help it get out there. If you would like to support the podcast financially, you can do that over at Custom Reptile. Nope, that's not the right thing. If you would like to support this podcast financially, you can do this at patreon.com slash animals at home and join the other patrons there. If you would like to support the sponsor, you can go to Custom Reptile Habitats in the show notes or the YouTube description. And that is an affiliate link. So if you do click that link and you make a purchase, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And I think that is it for this one, everybody. I will catch you next week.